I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's dominance in the rare earth industry. If you've ever made a call in a cell phone, driven in an electric vehicle, or watched a flat screen TV, chances are you've been in contact with rare earth elements, knowingly or unknowingly. Much of the world depends on China for its supply of rare earths. In fact, 80% of U.S. rare earth imports between 2014 and 2017 came from China. China's dominance in the industry's production and processing has given it a substantial leg up in the market. And on occasion, China has exploited its dominant position to pressure other countries to alter their policies in ways that would benefit Chinese interests. Chinese President Xi Jinping issued guidance when he paid a visit to a major rare earth plant in East China's Jiangxi province this past May. As China cements its standing in the industry, countries, including the U.S., are seeking to diversify their rare earth sources away from China, and Chinese rare earth exports to the U.S. dropped 11.3 percent year-on-year during the first half of 2019. The environmental and social issues caused by rare earth production have also been at the forefront of the conversation. To talk to us about rare earths, why they matter, and how China is using them, I'm joined by Dr. Julie Klingner. Dr. Klinger is an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University's Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies, as well as associate director of BU's Global Development Policy Center's Land Use and Livelihoods Initiative. Thanks for joining us today, Julie. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to start with, what exactly are rare earth elements? Where do they come from and how are they most commonly used? Well, the term rare earth elements refers to 17 chemically similar elements, numbers 59 to 71 on the periodic table, if you can picture it, remember your high school or college chemistry, as well as scandium and yttrium. Now, each of these elements are very distinct, one from the other, but what they do have in common is that they tend to have fantastic magnetic and conductive properties. And so it's actually the applications and innovations in rare earth applications over the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st century that enabled things like the miniaturization of electronics, the intensification of the power of magnets, the development of super light, super strong alloys that make everything from cell phone communications to satellite infrastructure and everything in between possible. Now, the term rare is actually a misnomer. Rare earth elements are not rare, at least not the ones that we rely on the most for our most critical applications. Most rare earth elements are about as common as copper or lead. They can be found on every continent in the world as well as on the ocean floor. And we know also that there are rare earth elements on the moon and on certain asteroids. So they are all around us. And that's good news because we use them in just about everything. It's not just our cell phones and our information technology, but it's also our energy infrastructure, whether we're talking fossil fuels, nuclear, green energy, or things like that. And they also have a variety of really important medical applications. They're integral to things like CAT scans, cancer treatment, bone implants, things like that. But because they are extremely dangerous, 
to mine and expensive to process and separate, they tend to be mined in places where companies can do it cheaply. And so in fairly recent history, this has meant China. China accounts for apparently approximately 70 percent of global rare earth production and holds a bit less than one-third of land-based uh, rare earth reserves, so not including what's in the seabed. So how is it that China became such a dominant force in the rare earth industry? That's an excellent question, especially in these critical times we're asking ourselves, how did it get to be this way? But in fact, the answer is fairly straightforward. Beginning in the 1980s, when China's leadership began to selectively open its borders to foreign direct investment, one of the attractive things that they offered to foreign companies you know, was a very low cost of labor and, frankly, very lax environmental regulations. And so just like gradually the textile industry, um, parts of the automotive assembly industry and things like that moved from the West to China, in the late 80s and then all through the 90s, gradually, piece by piece, parts of the rare earth supply chain moved from the West to China as well. You know, this didn't happen overnight. Rare supply chains are complex. They're expensive to set up. And so, you know, it began sort of piecemeal where, you know, one firm discovered that actually if they exported their ores for minimal processing in China and then re-imported them to make magnets in the United States, for example, they saved a lot of money. And then eventually it wasn't just processing things in China. It was also building magnets in China. And then it wasn't just building magnets in China. It was also building various technological components. And so this has been a process that's been 40 years in the making. But if you look at the history, it's actually not a mystery. This global transformation of the rare earth supply chain served interests in the U.S. I mean, certainly um, in the U.S. and Europe, places that had historically processed rare earth elements, you know, there were a lot of people who were relieved that the environmental burden was leaving and going somewhere else. And it was certainly good for firms because it was cheaper and to produce them in China, and so that made them more competitive. But now we you know that we have a geopolitical shift, that the global free trade regime that we've relied on for the past few decades is now changing. Of course, now the situation looks very different. You know, the first time that I heard about rare earth metals was in 2010, when there was the incident between Japan and a Chinese uh, fishing trawler. There was a drunk captain, and they arrested the captain. And then the Chinese apparently tried to halt exports of rare earth minerals to Japan for a period of time. There was a lot of discussion and debate about whether or not China was successful because Japan was apparently able to circumvent the rules and get rare earths anyway. What were the implications of this incident? And were there any lessons that were drawn as a result by Japan or, or by the U.S.? Oh, yes. That's an excellent question. Before I answer that, I want to say one more thing about how did China become such a dominant force in the rare earth industry. Yes, on one hand, global industry migrated to China over the last 30 years or so. But also, the Chinese government has been investing in R&D in the rare earth sector since the late 1950s. And so it wasn't just that China provided the cheap labor and a lax regulatory environment to attract industries, but they also had extensive technological know-how 
in the rare earth sector, particularly in the advanced application front. And this includes things like batteries, magnets, but also for military and industrial applications as well. Now, returning to the question about how did the 2010 export disruption affect global production? So I would say in 2010, when some folks in China temporarily held up some shipments of rare earth exports to Japan, a couple of things happened. So one, the story broke in the West, in the international media, that China had embargoed rare earth elements to Japan. Now, an embargo is a very serious thing, right? It's, a, it's an official stoppage of trade during a time of war, right? It's an act of government, of one government against another. What occurred in 2010 was nothing of the sort, but that didn't really matter because the embargo headlines hit and the markets reacted accordingly. And so what happened is that really a lot of, a lot of the rest of the world woke up to a couple of things. And in my book, I talk about this as a series of rude awakenings, right? All of us had to learn very quickly what rare earths are. And then at the same time, we also had to learn that China controlled at that time 97% of the global supply of rare earth elements. And then also we learned that rare earth elements are essential to the hardware and software of modern life. And so when there are geopolitical tensions, this represented a major vulnerability, not just for Japan, but potentially for the rest of the world. Now, the Chinese government insisted that it wasn't engaging in economic statecraft or economic warfare or anything like that with respect to rare earth elements at the time, but the damage had already been done. And all over the world, the public and the private sector invested in identifying new sources of rare earth elements. So there's been a lot of R&D into replacements, finding replacements for rare earth elements, into developing more efficient recycling and reclamation techniques. And then also what we've seen are efforts to open new mines in different parts of the world. So the rare earth mine in Mountain Pass, California has come on and offline and back on again. Uh, in Australia, Linus opened a rare earth mining facility. And these actually were the only two companies, the only two mines out of, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 prospective mines that were agitating in the aftermath of 2010 to basically transform the supply chain and reduce China's role in it. So I would say that the 2010 incident had a very serious effect on global production. And also, from a more positive side, it actually provided a moment in which the international public learned what rare earth elements are, why they're important, and then also that maybe the way that we had been sourcing them wasn't socially or environmentally sustainable. So about two years after that incident in 2012, the U.S. filed a complaint against China in the World Trade Organization, arguing the Chinese use of export restrictions on rare earths violated its WTO obligations and artificially inflated global prices. And there were other countries that also joined the dispute as, uh, as third parties. And ultimately, the WTO ruled against China, which then removed the export duties and quotas. So how would you assess the significance of that case? Mm, that case in 2012 was really quite important. I will say that it was preceded by a similar complaint in 2009 
by the same parties against China for controlling prices, not just for rare earths, but things like antimony and other important technology metals. And in the 2009 case, China argued that it was controlling production for environmental reasons, which it's allowed to do under GATT Article 20, which allows countries to control production of resources for environmental purposes or in the case of depletion. And China successfully argued the environmental and the depletion side in 2009. They did not do so successfully in 2012 with a number of different consequences. So first, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the export disruptions to Japan in 2010, markets reacted, right? And rare earth prices went through the roof. And this actually had the effect of creating a tremendous opportunity for rare earth companies outside of China that not only wanted to get into the game and get involved in diversifying the, the supply chain, but also, you know, there was a lot of talk about mining rare earths and processing rare earths in an environmentally superior way, right? And with prices high, it looks like the market would have rewarded companies for taking on that risk. But with the outcome of the 2012 case, in January 2014, China removed the export duties and quotas, and this definitively brought the prices back down. And this, for a lot of companies, hundreds, literally hundreds of companies, was the nail in the coffin of what was a fairly short-lived dream of you know, playing a key role in diversifying the global supply chain and innovating us out of environmentally destructive production. So fast forward to today, since the onset of the U.S.-China trade war, there's been some media in China that have raised the threat of curtailing rare earth shipments to the United States. Is this a mm -hmm. lever that Beijing can use against the U.S.? What is the real leverage that China has here, and what's the likelihood of them actually carrying out this threat? That's a really interesting question. I mean, theoretically, yes. We're in the midst of a trade dispute between the U.S. and China. And so one gets the sense that everything is pretty much on the table. You know, this has escalated over the past month. And, you know, a lot of us are waiting to see what's going to happen come September. The thing that we have to pay attention to, though, is which rare earth components China might be talking about limiting the export to the United States. So, for example, if China starts talking about limiting the export of rare earth magnets or other rare earth bearing technological components that are used in information technology or military technology, for example, then we would be looking at a very serious supply chain disruption because most of that supply chain has moved out of the U.S. and uh, into China right, over the previous decades. On the other side of it, if China says, well, okay, we're going to withhold exports of minimally processed rare earth oxides to the United States, you know, that would hurt a couple key industries, but it wouldn't pose as serious a threat to our national security, to consumer prices and things like that, 
as long as rare earth magnets and various rare earth bearing technological components still continue to be exported here. So that's the important thing to be really clear about. It's not simply a matter of halting the export of one or two things. Because, in fact, we import all sorts of things that contain rare earth elements from China, and we're a very important market for them. And so it's important to keep these things in mind when we're assessing the level of the potential threat here. You've talked about the environmental consequences of uh, rare earth's production, the you know pollution and toxic waste. And what is being done in, in China to address this environmental damage and is there a possibility that in the future the the production is going to be cleaner so that it will be easier for other countries like the U.S. to ramp up production? Well, the Chinese government has done a lot of fairly dramatic things to address the environmental and public health crises, to be quite frank, that have been generated by several decades of rare earth production in several key regions of China. This includes a pretty large box of tools. So in some of the most extreme cases, you know, mining towns in Western China have been entirely resettled, right? In in Chinese, these are called resource exhausted regions. So if there's a city where, you know, the, the water table has been entirely contaminated and the soil has been entirely contaminated and the mine is largely exhausted, then the central government has allocated billions of renminbi to resettle cities that have populations that number in the tens of thousands. They've also invested a lot in expanding hospital and healthcare facilities to treat populations that are suffering from the particular ailments that are generated by exposure to pollutants that are part of rare earth mining and processing. So these tend to be certain cancers, certain bone conditions, certain skin conditions, and there's large state-run hospitals that have been built in the cities where the populations are most affected. In terms of these reorganizing the industry, the rare earth industry in China followed a trajectory fairly similar to the coal industry in that smaller private firms were given a window of time in which they could sell out or sell their operations to a larger state-owned company, after which they would be forcibly closed. And the result of this is that all rare earth production in China has concentrated under six state-owned enterprises. It used to be characterized by a whole motley crew of small, medium, and large-scale businesses, some public, some privately owned. Now it's really dominated by the state OEs. But finally, and this is maybe one of the most interesting things, is if you look at some of these more polluted regions, a time series of satellite images, you'll notice that things like the largest sources of pollution, right, like toxic dumps, tailings ponds, these sorts of things, over the past couple of years have been steadily drained and filled in. Now, we don't know where those contaminants or where that pollution is going. But all of this is to say that China's government has undertaken a really impressive, comprehensive strategy to control some of the worst effects of environmentally irresponsible rare earth production. And this includes all manner of technological upgrades and retrofits in existing rare earth processing facilities. You said earlier that I think it was about 2010 that China had about 97% of the rare earth production market. And, and today, 
it's approximately 70%. So is this a trend that's likely to continue? Is China likely then to lose the dominance in the rare earth production market? Or do you think we've sort of settled at a point that's likely to be sustained? Well, I don't think that we are currently at a point where anyone is satisfied. One of the key points that tends to be overlooked in all of these discussions about rare earths in the context of uh, ongoing trade disputes is the fact that diversifying the global supply chain of rare earths is not only in the interest of the U.S. and other downstream consumers, but is also very much in the interest of China, as articulated in you know the government's five-year plan since the mid-2000s. So the Chinese government is not interested in supplying the lion's share of raw materials for rare earth elements. And in fact, over the past five or six years, they've begun importing increasingly larger amounts of the raw materials from Southeast Asia, from Central Asia. And in fact, the facilities at Mountain Pass in California have also shipped their raw material to China for processing. So China doesn't want to continue to mine its resources. It's very much interested in giving up that part of its dominance in the global rare earth supply chain. I think the thing that will require us all to think more creatively and collaboratively, and I mean this also in partnership with engineers in China, is how we actually diversify the global value-added supply chain. So one of the possibilities that I expect that we will see, you know, again, barring another WTO decision or something like that, that forces prices back down to untenable lows where no one but China can supply rare earth elements to the rest of the world for a given price. I think that we will continue to see China's share of rare earth production falling. And I think that as long as We and the rest of the world are smart about investing in developing the technological supply chains to repatriate parts of production to other countries. We'll start to see a more decentralized global production chain. All of that to say, simply opening new mines in the U.S. or in the Americas is not going to fundamentally change the situation because much of the value-added technological supply chain is also located in China. And both governments and the companies that have located their facilities in China or sourcing from Chinese firms have a role to play in diversifying this. So do we currently see a competitive relationship between the U.S. and China on rare earth policy, including mining and processing? Or is there collaboration or more potential for collaboration? So it's interesting that you ask that. Scientifically, the U.S. and China and Japan as well have a really rich history of collaboration around R&D for rare earth applications. So, you know, occasionally this increase in geopolitical tensions, but scientists are continuing to get on with their work and they're working with their international partners on how to make a better battery, how to make a more powerful magnet, you know, how to use resources more efficiently. And so that collaboration has continued, and that's really quite important because it's from those collaborations that we've gotten some of our greatest advances from which everybody benefits. Now, in terms of whether the U.S. and China are competing, I'll go ahead and say it. China has outcompeted the U.S. when it comes to rare earth innovation 
for over a decade. And there's a very simple way to measure this. Who is filing more patents? Since 2008, China has filed more patents that have to do with innovations with rare earth application than any other country. But 2008 was when they started out pace the United States. And that is a direct outcome of the disinvestment on the part of the public and the private sector in the U.S., in the national laboratories, as well as in universities, as well as the closure of various magnet and value-added technology plants on U.S. soil. So it may be controversial to say, but it's a harsh truth that we need to face. Right now, we're not competitive with China when it comes to rare earth R&D, and we haven't been for over a decade. Well, sounds like we have a lot to do in our own R&D and policy space to compete more effectively with China in a lot of areas, including rare earths. <laughs> That's right. We've been talking with Dr. Julie Klinger, who is Assistant Professor of International Relations at Boston University, as well as the Associate Director of BU's Global Development Policy Center's Land Use and Livelihoods Initiative. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. 